0: Jonathan McIntosh is a Fellow of Humanities at New St. Andrews College, where he teaches courses in philosophy and the history of political and economic thought. His paper tonight is titled Pre-Fall Civil Government, Why There Wasn't and Why It Matters. Jonathan. Uh, You should have a handout near you with some quotes. I won't be going through all these quotes. Um, You basically, on two pages, you have almost everything that's ever been written historically on this topic, at least that I've I've been able to find. So was there or would there have been civil government before or in the absence of the fall? For many Christians, the lack of direct biblical teaching on the subject is uh, maybe reason enough to dismiss the question as an unanswerable, idle question speculation, the political equivalent of the medieval debate over how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. For those Christians who think the question worth entertaining, however, it's not been entirely clear how the question is best answered. On the one hand, are those who, impressed by the coercive nature of human civil government, have been led to deny that there would have been civil government before the fall, since there would have been no sinful conflict and hence no need for the use of coercion. On the other hand, are those who viewing the fundamental function of civil government as less properly a matter of coercion than it is of social coordination have been led to think that even in a sinless world, there would still maybe have been a need for social order and leadership, and hence a need for civil government. What both of these responses illustrate is that the question of pre-fall civil government is actually of immense practical significance as it helps focus the question of the nature and purpose of civil government like few other questions can. For what role, if any, civil government was intended by God to play in his original design for creation has enormous implications for what we ought to expect from and how we ought to limit civil government today. In this paper, accordingly, I will provide a brief summary of the history of some of the more important philosophical and theological reflections that I at least, have. Um, that I've been able to find on this question. Not a lot has been written on it. Very little has been written on it. Uh, I will then conclude with some of my own reasons for thinking there was not or would not have been civil government without the fall. And finally, what I think some of the implications of this viewpoint are for political philosophy generally and how we might uh, think about civil government today. All right. Well, the first statement on the question of pre-fall civil government is, um, comes from none other than the great Bishop of Hippo himself, St. Augustine, His dates are 354 to 430 AD. In his massive apologetic for the Christian faith, the city of God, a work contrasting the heavenly city founded on love for God with the earthly city rooted in the domination of man, Augustine at one point raises the question of whether the act of dominion itself or the rule of one man over another was part of God's original creation design, or whether it was the result only of human sin. In book 19 of The City of God, which contains the heart of Augustine's political thought, Augustine writes the following. This passage number one in your handout. Augustine says this. He, God, did not intend that his rational creature, who was made in his image, should have dominion over anything but the irrational creation. Not man over man, but man over the beast's. And hence, the righteous men in primitive times were made shepherds of cattle rather than kings of men, God intending thus to teach us what the relative position of the creature is and what the desert of sin. For it is with justice we believe that the condition of slavery is the result of sin. And this is why we do not find the word slave in any part of Scripture until righteous Noah branded the sin of his son with this name. It is a name, therefore, introduced by sin and not by nature. End quote. So for Augustine, then, being made in the image of God means that man was made to rule over the other creatures and not over each other. Moving forward in time, by more than 800 years, the next thinker to take up the question of pre civil government was St. Thomas Aquinas, 1225 to 1274. Influenced by Aristotle's teaching that man is by nature a political animal, Aquinas was persuaded to qualify Augustine's denial of man's pre-fall dominion over other men, although that's a question whether he's really qualifying it or maybe Aquinas has, has actually got the right reading of it. According to Aquinas, and again, here he's following Aristotle, there's not one, but in fact, two basic kinds of rule or dominion of man over man that we need to distinguish between. One kind of rule is what he calls the despotic dominion of slavery, in which the subject is not free to act as he will, but has his whole being and action subordinated to the direction and the benefit of another, of the master, of the ruler. As Augustine interprets him, it is specifically this form of dominion that Augustine had in view when he denied that there would have been dominion of one man over another in man's pre-fall state of innocence. A second form of dominion or, or rule, however, is what Aquinas calls a royal or political form of dominion which is exercised not over slaves, but over free men, and whose aim, the aim of which, is not the benefit of the ruler, but the benefit of the ruled. While Aquinas agrees with Augustine that the despotic form of dominion was indeed utterly incompatible with man's original state of innocence, this second royal or political form of rule, Aquinas asserts to not only have been consistent with man's state of innocence, but actually necessary for it. Why does Aquinas think this? Well, his argument runs as follows, and this is uh, passage number two in your handout. Aquinas writes this, Man is naturally a social being, and so in the state of innocence, he would have led a social life. Now, a social life cannot cannot exist among a number of people unless under the presidency of one, to look after the common good. For many, as such, seek many things whereas one attends only to one, one thing. Wherefore, the philosopher, that's Aristotle, the philosopher says in the beginning of the politics that wherever many things are directed to one, we shall always find one at the head directing them. Secondly, if one man surpassed another in knowledge and virtue, this would not have been fitting unless these gifts conduced to the benefit of others, according to 1 Peter 4.10. Quote, as every man hath received grace, ministering the same one to another, end quote. End of of the Aquinas quote. So Aquinas thus divides his argument for pre-fall civil government into two main parts. In the first part, he makes the point that even apart from the fall, and hence the disordering influence of sin, a multitude of individuals living together in community would still have needed to have their actions ordered or coordinated with respect to each other if they were to attain not just the private good of their own individual selves, but more importantly, the common good of the whole community. For Aquinas, it is a universal metaphysical principle, and hence a truth quite independent of the question of human sin and conflict, that wherever there is a multitude, that multitude needs an ordering agent to direct the multitude as an integral, organized whole. Well, the second part of Aquinas' argument proceeds from a premise he had established in in an earlier passage, the one, in fact, immediately preceding the one uh, we're looking at here. As he had argued in that previous passage, even if there had never been a fall, human beings would not have been equal to each other, but would have differed from each other in such matters as age, right? People are pre-fall, still coming into the world at different moments of time. So they would have differed in age. Would have, would have had uh, differences of sex, still would have been male, female. There would have been differences of knowledge, and he says even differences of virtue. Uh, by that, he doesn't mean there would be anybody defective in virtue, but still people would have made different progress in virtue. They would have differed in virtue and they would have even differed in beauty. Okay, So even pre-fall, some of you would still have been better looking uh, than, the, than the rest of us. Um, uh, Building on this idea, the point Aquinas makes in our present passage is that this great diversity of gifts among men in their unfallen state would have been to no great purpose if these gifts could not be exercised or shared for the benefit of others. If so, then pre-fall social order would have involved men of superior gifts using their superiority for the benefit of their inferiors. Now, combine this insight with Aquinas' previous point that even prefall human society would still have been in need of a leader to direct its members of the community to the common good, and we have all the ingredients, for affirming the existence of a form of civil government in man's original state of innocence. So that's Aquinas' argument. Given the role of Aristotle in leading Aquinas to his view of pre-fall civil government, it's Uh, I think fascinating to note that there were other medieval thinkers, no less influenced by Aristotle, who were nevertheless led to the exact opposite conclusion to that of Aquinas. The great 14th century political theorist, Marsilius of Padua, 1275 to 1342. Uh, Marsilius, for example, despite his agreement with Aristotle, the political community is the most perfect or complete community Curiously, he denies that society as such is in need of a civil ruler. Rather, it is only the disputes and conflicts that arise among sinful men that introduces the necessity of civil government, such that had Adam remained in his sinless state, Marsilius conjectures, there would have been no need for a specifically civil form of rule. And you can, uh, at your own leisure, read what, what Marsilius has to say in passages number three and four. Marsilius' marginalization of the role of civil government is made all the more surprising in that it occurs in the context of his famous and influential work, Defender of the Peace, in which he seeks to establish precisely the political independence and sovereignty of secular rulers from the authority of the church and the pope, a thesis for which Marsilius was condemned as a heretic by Pope John XXII in 1327. So it's interesting that he doesn't follow Aquinas in this. You might have thought that this idea of the naturalness even pre-fall of civil government would have been been congenial to his point that uh, civil rulers have have an autonomy and independence of uh, politically from the Pope, yet that's not where he goes with it. While it was Aquinas' view that prevailed amongst later Catholic thinkers, including the great counter-Reformation Jesuit theologian Francisco Suarez, the view of the anti-papalist Marsilius is arguably the one that curried the most favor with Protestant thinkers. I say arguably because among (laughs) Protestant writers, the viewpoints are admittedly mixed. While I've yet to find a single Protestant writer who explicitly affirms the existence of pre-fall civil government, the great reformed political theorist, Johannes Althusius, 1563 to 1638, he represents what no doubt would have been a commonly held view amongst many reformed thinkers, when he speaks of man having a natural inclination to form society with others and of the natural necessity for such societies uh, to be ordered or governed politically. The implication of which uh, would would seem to be that there would have been civil government apart from the fall. Although again, I, I I haven't found all enthusiasts saying that explicitly. That having been said, the Protestant sources I have found to directly touch on our question either deny pre-fall civil government, or at the very least, reference the need for civil government to the fall, which you might think amounts to the same thing, but you know, I'm a philosopher, we like to make careful distinctions here. Uh, an example of the latter tendency to, to uh, reference the need for civil government to the fall, um, an example of this is uh, the Belgic Confession, uh, 1559, a document, interestingly, that enthusiasts would have subscribed to, um, but which states the following in Article 36 of the Belgic Confession. This is passage number five in your handout. Um, says this, We believe that because of the depravity of the human race, our good God has ordained kings, princes, and civil officers. End quote. As this statement implies, civil government was ordained by God on account of the fall. Another prominent Protestant writer to address the issue, though only very briefly, is the Reformed Anglican theologian Richard Hooker. 1554 to 1600, who says in his laws of ecclesiastical polity that civil government was ordained to rectify certain acts of public wrongdoing. And for which reason, he says, there's nothing impossible in the idea of there having been no civil rule in man's original created estate. Again, you can read Hooker yourself, uh, passage number six. A more recent reformed opinion, now fast forwarding, few hundred years, Um, a more recent reformed opinion on the question of pre-fall civil government uh, may be found in the Dutch Calvinist theologian and statesman Abraham Kuyper, who in his uh, famous lectures on Calvinism asserts, uh, and this is passage number seven, uh, that all state formation is fundamentally unnatural. That's his word, unnatural, because of what he calls a primordial truth of Calvinism, namely, quote, that God has instituted the magistrates by reason of sin," end quote. So, I, I think there's probably a little bit of an overstate, um, but that was at least Kuyper's judgment that this is a primordial truth of Calvinism. Why does God give us civil government? Why does He give us magistrates because of sin? Well, our final example, um, our, our final author is uh, the one Protestant writer I found to deal the most extensively, and to my mind, the most helpfully. Uh, with the question of pre-fall civil government. And that is the 17th century Scottish Presbyterian and uh, also delegate to the Westminster Assembly, Samuel Rutherford, 1600 to 1661. In his famous and influential influential work, Lex Rex, uh, Rutherford cites Aristotle's politics in his affirmation of man's inherently social nature. Everybody's got to check the Aristotle box. Everybody's reading Aristotle. Um, so, cites Aristotle, agrees with him on man's inherently social nature, yet Rutherford goes on to expressly deny that this social nature necessarily means the existence of civil government uh, pre-fall. As Rutherford defines it, the, quote, power of government, end quote, the power of government, refers in the first instance to the individual's natural right and ability to defend himself, quote, from violence by violence. What's well, Government. The ability to use violence, that's that's government, (laughs) okay? Um, So clearly clearly presupposing a post-fall situation. When this original political power of violent self-defense is delegated to a civil ruler, only then does it become what he calls the power of government by magistracy. Okay, so power of government by magistracy is a delegated power. As for the pre-fall situation, citing the same argument from Aquinas that we read from earlier, Rutherford agrees with Aquinas that men would indeed have been unequal prior to the fall. And what is more, he, se- he seems to agree that this inequality would have meant a kind of superiority and even maybe a kind of rule. He writes, and this is passage number eight, and I realize I have two passages, number eight, but uh, this would be the second one. Um, uh, he says this, Aquinas, following Aristotle, holds that though man had never sinned, there should have been a sort of dominion of the more gifted and wiser above the less wise and weaker, not antecedent from nature properly, but consequent for the utility and good of the weaker, insofar as it is good for the weaker to be guided by the stronger, which cannot be denied to have some ground in nature. So he's basically agreeing with Aquinas on that that one point that, yeah. There there would have been diversity, and that diversity would have been inequality. That inequality means hierarchy, uh, superiority, that kind of thing, at least a a relative superiority. Despite this agreement with Aquinas, Rutherford goes on to disagree with Aquinas' view that this relative superiority and resulting dominion, um, qualified dominion, had in it anything of a specifically political nature, stating that, quote, there is no ground for kings by nature here." End quote. In an argument that would later be taken up and popularized by John Locke, Rutherford argues that no human being is by nature the political, super- the political superior uh, of anyone else as every human being is born naturally free and hence politically equal to everyone, being without any natural subjection to anyone else. Political subjection, rather, can only be lawfully brought about as a result of deliberate human action and choice. And as Rutherford makes clear, it is an action and choice that individual human beings undertake for the purpose of specifically providing a more effective defense against violence. Again, saying many many things that um, anticipate Locke's more famous treatment of these same matters in his second treatise on government. What is not until Rutherford takes up directly the question of the dignity and power of the king relative to the people that he addresses the question of pre-fall government explicitly. he writes this, passage number nine, that king should necessarily have been in, in the world if man had never fallen in sin. I am not by any cogent argument induced to believe. I conceive there should have been no government but those of fathers and children, husband and wife, and which is improperly government- some more gifted with supervenient additions to nature's gifts and excellencies of engines, right? That's his hat tip to, to Aquinas, right? Granted, but that's improperly called government. Well, with this historical survey in hand, let's turn finally to some concluding thoughts on how we might or even ought to think about the topic of pre-fall civil government. Mm-hmm. As Rutherford himself appreciated, I think Aquinas is is fundamentally correct in his view that human beings would have indeed differed from each other in the state of innocence, in their abilities and their expertise, and that this diversity would have resulted in real superiority and and a a form of hierarchy and, and hence authority in those matters. I think Rutherford is also correct, however, in his denial that these considerations by themselves are sufficient to establish the necessity or existence of the institution of civil government itself in man's state of innocence. Well, why? This is because in order to establish the necessity or existence of civil government, it's necessary to first distinguish and posit a form of authority, a form of governance or rule. Let's call it the political function. It's necessary to establish, to distinguish and establish this this governing function that is specific, unique, or proper to civil government as such. A governing function, in other words, that belongs exclusively to civil government and to no other created institution. In other words, it has to be a governing function that has, as we might put it, no private sector equivalent. What is more, because we are talking about the possibility of civil government in a world in which there is no sin, it must be a governing function that is exclusive to civil government and yet which does not involve the use of coercion. At the same time, its governing function also has to be such that when the fall does occur, it is this governing function that for some reason specifically distinguishes and qualifies this hypothetical pre-fall institution of civil government. It qualifies that institution as the one that inherits the now new task of exercising coercive force on behalf of the whole community, right? We gotta be able to connect the dots between the thing we call civil government now that's using coercion and the thing we're calling civil government before the fall. So whatever it is that made it civil government before the fall, it's got to explain why it's that thing that picks up once we fall. Okay, now we need this new function, which is um, the the, uh, exercise of coercion. But what is this governing function? I submit to you that this question has never been adequately answered, and I think it's because it actually has no answer. You've got to find a, a, a function that's unique, proper, specific to civil government, as civil government, that it does, properly belongs to it, and no other institution. Aquinas, for his part, and to his credit, tried to answer this question, and what is more, I think he puts his finger on what would be the answer to this question, if it had one. For Aquinas, once again, the essential, defining, governing function of civil government is its task in authoritatively directing the whole community as a community, as an integrated whole, to the common good. The problem with Aquinas' answer is that in order to create this necessity, like why do we even need this governing function, Aquinas, seems to me, had to first deprive pre-fall man of any significant pre-fall social consciousness in concern for the common good. Right? Why do we need government? Because pre-fall, you just got a bunch of people running around like cats, serving their own private interests. Nobody's looking out for the common good. Okay. The resulting irony is that Aquinas purchases man's pre-fall political nature, I think, at the expense of sacrificing man's pre-fall social nature. Okay? He turns man into a kind of homo economicus pre-fall. And that's why we need somebody looking out for the common good. Another difficulty is that, interestingly, Aquinas himself understands this royal or political authority we talked about earlier uh, that he thinks is compatible with pre-fall, man's pre-fall state of innocence. Aquinas himself understands this royal or political authority that would have existed before the fall as an authority exercised over entirely voluntary beings such that they would have the freedom and discretion to act in a manner contrary to the direction of the civil rulers when they wanted to, right? It's it's voluntary rule, so the civil ruler tells you to do something, you have the prerogative of of not not obeying. But if a man, I mean, in the best form of rule, which would have presumably existed pre-fall, but if a man had the freedom before the fall to act differently or apart from the coordinating directives of the so-called civil government, then he presumably also would have had the freedom to undertake his own plans for organizing members of the community uh, for the common good, which would mean that we now would have not one, but effectively a plurality of so-called civil governments. All of this raises another question that I can only briefly touch on here, but which I think should be towards the forefront of our minds in the debate over pre-fall civil government. And that is the question of centralization versus decentralization. In a sinless world of perfect peace and the willingness to cooperate amongst everyone, would we expect more centralization or less centralization, more decentralization or less, right? Why do we put all of our eggs in one basket or tend to put more of our eggs in one basket pre or post fall? Well, this argument is, you know, things like market failure and, and, and we just can't leave it to the market to provide these things. Um, but would there be market failure uh, pre fall? Um, and there's a debate over whether there's even market failure after the fall, but that's, um, that's I'll leave that to the professionals. Um, So, um, sorry, I lost my place. Um, So what might all of this mean for us uh, practically? Christians need to understand that uh, whatever they think the role of civil government might have been before the fall is implicitly also at least part of what they think the role of civil government ought to be today. And it is in part because Christians often lack, I think, a coherent theory of when and for what reason civil government was created in the first place that the Christian church today lacks a clear voice on what it is we think civil government should, and just as importantly, should not be up to. What is its job? If we would have the church bear a consistent and intelligible witness to civil rulers today, then I think it's imperative that we go back to the beginning when God began everything and ask what role, if any, God ordained for civil government in his original design for unfallen man. And again, if we can't find a distinctive, defining purpose for civil government there, which I believe no one has yet to do, then this means that the existence of civil government is entirely predicated upon the eventuality of the fall and the reality of human sin, conflict, and the need for coercion and resolving and disincentivizing that conflict. This thesis by itself doesn't, of course, tell us when civil governments, for example, are morally justified in their use of coercion, a question that the libertarians amongst us would naturally want to see addressed, nor does it it directly address the question of whether in our fallen world, those civil governments exercising coercive force on behalf of the community can ever have a right of monopoly on that use of force and so become states, a question the philosophical anarchists would want to press. Nevertheless, clarity on the question of pre-fall civil government, I think promises to bring much needed clarity to these and other debates over issues of fundamental political, philosophical concern, as well as much needed, and I would add urgent uh, clarity to the question of what we as Christians ought to expect from and what we believe the inherent natural law limits to be of civil government today. Thank you.